few weeks ago, I finished a biography of George Washington by Ron Chernow. He is the uh, biographer of Hamilton and other great American figures. It's 904 pages, so it took me a little while. Um, but what I learned is that Washington is a remarkable man, or was a remarkable man. Now, he had his flaws, but as our country's first president, he wisely guided our nation in our early days. His vision, his character, his wise leadership established a pattern that every president since has been measured by. Well, I've also been reading the biography of another man. This man is one, the one who many consider to be Israel's greatest king, King David. He's so important that his story takes 54 chapters of the Bible. More in the Bible is devoted to David than any other character except Jesus. Now, if you know anything about David, you know that he was not a perfect man. And we won't get into uh, his most uh, famous failure, his infidelity with Bathsheba this summer. That we'll save for next summer. But you should be warned that as gifted and talented as David was, he was very human. And the narrator presents him in three dimensions. He was, on one hand, a remarkably gifted man, a poet, a musician, a soldier, a politician, and a religious leader, but he also had his flaws. From the beginning, though, we're told that his primary quality is his devotion to God. It's what made him so unusual among Israel's kings. So in the coming weeks, as we dig into David's story, I think you'll find that there's a lot to learn, especially about how he relates to God, how it shows a human being relating to the God of the universe. I mentioned a moment ago, it's a long story. It's actually going to take us probably three different summers to go through it. And this summer, what we're going to do is to look at David's story from the beginning when he's somewhere between 10 and 15. We don't really know, but he's young. And then we'll look at him all the way until he's in his early 30s. But it's an eventful and awkward time in David's life. The part of the story that we're going to look at today gives some great predictions about David's future but it's unfortunately going to be a long time before those predictions are fulfilled, probably as much as a couple of decades. Through it all, David is front and center in the story, although the way the narrator tells the story, he reminds us that David isn't the main character, that God is the one who's behind the scenes guiding the events that are moving on. Now, one other thing I want to mention before we get started with this series is that, for the most part, our weekly sermons here at City Church are a relatively solitary activity. So either I or Amy or Devin or Kara or Peter will go off and study the text for a week and come back and um, teach you what we've been thinking about all week. Generally, it doesn't involve many other people, but we had an idea recently that we hope involves all of you in the sermon process. What we did is we wrote a study guide, so there's a set of questions for each week in this series. Uh, writing questions actually isn't unusual. We often do that for our growth groups so they can discuss the sermon, but that's usually after the sermon's been given. In this case, we wrote the questions all at once so that we had them in advance so that you can be looking ahead. You can read the story a week or two in advance, think about some questions that might give you some ideas, and then you can share with us as a staff what you're learning, what you're thinking about questions you might have. And that will, I think, keep us on our toes. It's an opportunity for all of you to get involved in this weekly sermon process. Now, let me just tell you an assumption, and that is that the Bible, I believe, is not a mysterious book. I think anyone can read it and understand what it's talking about. And yes, there are some confusing, even awkward portions of the Bible, but most of it's fairly straightforward. So during this, ser this series, we'd like to invite you into that sermon preparation process. So read the story in the advance, maybe use the questions in this study guide as a way to think through the, the, the lessons, and then send us your thoughts. So we've set up an email address, 
It's kingdavidideas at gmail.com. It's in the, in the book, kingdavidideas at gmail.com. And so it might be a question or a thought or a reflection or an illustration, but really anything that you think about that you think might be worth sharing with us. Now, already I've had three people send me emails. Um, one of those is a question that I wouldn't have addressed. It's something I would have skipped over in the text, so we're going to tackle that today. And I'm saving the other two because they're more substantial questions for subsequent weeks, but I really do want you to send us your ideas. Do it maybe seven to ten days in advance. That gives us a little chance to research and do the things we need to do. But I think that will help make this a more community experience. So with that, let's get into the story, but there's one more little piece of background we need before we start talking about David, and that is something that we talked about last summer, and I know not all of you were here, but we looked at the life of King Saul. Saul was Israel's first king. He's described as tall and handsome, a natural leader, and he got off to a great start, although very quickly, things started to go off the rails. It's very clear when you read Saul's story that he was a talented man. But he was also foolish and disobedient, and eventually God became frustrated with him, and he told told Samuel, Israel's spiritual leader at the time, that he regretted making Saul king. And that brings us to today's story, when, as you'll see, Samuel is told to look by God, to look for a new king. And the story opens with Samuel in a bit of a funk. He'd invested a great deal of energy in Saul, and his failure hit Samuel hard. So we're going to begin reading the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now, you can follow along if you wish in one of the Pew Bibles on page 401. You can also look at the words on the screen, or you can take out your phone and look at uh, whatever Bible app you might have. But we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now, here's the deal. Apparently, he's been spending late nights crying, sobbing, mourning over Saul's failure. God says, that's enough. Stop dwelling on the past. Now, one thing I want to mention here, because it would be easy for this to be misunderstood, God is not saying it wasn't wrong for Samuel to grieve. He's just saying there is a time to grieve, and then there's a time to move on. And now's that time. Then God gives him some direction. He says, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Now that's simple enough, but it raises a problem. So in verse 2, Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The problem here is that Israel already has a king, King Saul. So to anoint anyone else would have been considered an act of treason. And given Saul's temperament, and we'll see more about that as we go through subsequent weeks, it's absolutely clear that Saul's the kind of guy who would have gone out to kill Samuel and even then David. It's that simple. So what does God tell him? It says, The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. So what the text is acknowledging is that Samuel's fears are legitimate, But God's suggestion here is surprising. Now, this is the part I almost skipped because I got other things to say and I want to use my time well. But I got an email question at kingdavidideas at gmail.com about this verse. And here's the question. I know that God does not lie, but God's suggestion here appears to be a half-truth, and that makes me uncomfortable. When Abraham passed off Sarah as his sister, it was a lie, and things didn't go so well for him, even though it worked out. Samuel is telling a half-truth, omitting the real purpose for his visit, and that doesn't seem quite right either. 
What am I to think? Okay, good question. Is Samuel being asked by God, being told by God, to tell a white lie? Now, I got to tell you the answer here is complicated, but let me just tell you what some have proposed. Some say that Samuel here is giving in to his fears. The problem isn't God's solution, it's Samuel's fears, his cowardly behavior. Others suggest that God didn't say this to Samuel, that actually Samuel was the one who had the fears, he invented the solution, and he just kind of told the narrator that God told him to do it. Now, that makes the narrator a stooge, so I don't think that's probably right. And others say, well, God knew Saul's character so well that he knew that if he found out, he would try to kill Samuel and David, so he gave Samuel a clever way to avoid detection. So what's the answer? Well, we know Samuel's in danger. Saul, as we'll soon see, is the jealous type and capable of murder. So it would have been hazardous to anoint a king when there already was a king. So God gives Samuel a way around the problem. So is God authorizing a deception? Now, here's my take on it. First of all, God has given us a moral code. Let me just give you an example that you're probably familiar with, and that is the code that we call the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. A set of moral absolutes that guide our lives. Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit murder. Um, but life can be complicated, and sometimes two absolutes are in conflict. Let me just give you an example. If you've ever taken an ethics class, maybe one of the case studies you looked at is to imagine yourself in World War II Europe, and you are harboring a Jew. You're hiding a Jew from the Nazis. And one day, a Nazi SS trooper comes to the door, knocks on the door, and says, are you or do you have a Jew here in your home. What do you do? Do you tell a lie in order to save this person's life, or do you tell the truth and then know that this person will go probably to certain death? When I was in graduate school, there were two professors that taught Christian social ethics. And so I asked both of them this question, and one said, it's always wrong to lie, and then I said, well, what then happens to the Jew? And he said, well, God will take care of it. The other said, well, if there are two absolutes in conflict, figure out which one is the most important in the moment and then do that one. So in that case, lie to the Nazi in order to save the Jew. So what happened here in this story that we're looking at? By the way, I read somebody this week who came up with a multi-page, very complicated argument for how God didn't really tell Samuel to lie and Samuel didn't really lie. The whole thing didn't kind of fell apart. But I do believe that what God is telling Samuel in this case is that there is a higher purpose and that in order to preserve the life of Israel's future king, that he is to do something that is a bit deceptive. Now, let's not take this kind of thing lightly. Clearly, obeying God's commands should be the default for what we're going to do. But if there is a conflict between two values, the higher value is the one we're to prioritize. And that's what I think is going on here. I think these kinds of situations are rare, so we need to be careful about thinking and using this as an excuse when we're having to make hard decisions. Now, one other thing. In the summers, we have more children in our services than we normally do, so some of you children are listening a little bit more intently to all of this than you normally do. And so, just to make certain that I don't get in trouble with a bunch of parents and get a lot of email this week, let me just say, kids, don't lie. Tell the truth. There may be occasions, but, you know, probably not. So Samuel does what God tells him to do. He traveled to Bethlehem, and when he arrived, Jesse's family gathered, and he sacrificed the heifer, and then he set up these interviews. Um, when I was in graduate school getting my MBA, you know, they had these, they'd set up a room, and a company would come, and they'd interview 15 people in a day. Well, that's, just imagine that. That's kind of what's going on here. So he sets up these interviews, and he starts with the oldest son. 
It says, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shaman pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So Eliab looks the part, God says no. Then comes Abinadab, again God says no, he's followed by Shaman and four others, and none of them are the ones. And at that point, Samuel's confused. Each one looked good to him, but God at each point directed him that looks can be deceiving. So I want to read again verse 7. He says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I think it's probably always been this way, but our culture is particularly fixated on outward appearance. This week I was listening to a podcast, and uh, on the podcast was a former intern for one of the major uh, late-night talk shows. And one of her jobs when she first started was to go out where people had lined up to come in to see the, the program and to put them in three categories. She had some kind of little, not transparent at all, code that she wrote down on a little card, and she'd give a card to each person. And what they told her to do was to, first of all, um, pick uh, about three or four rows worth of people that were the beautiful people, because those are the ones that the cameras would see. Then the average people were to sit in the middle of the theater, and then the others in the back. That's what she did every night for this show, sorting people by how they looked. And we make snap judgments all the time based on nothing more than appearance. And we pick people based on just a resume. We value people who have money, beauty, and power over those who don't. And God tells Samuel that those things don't matter. What matters is the heart. And by that, he meant the core of who a person is, their true character. God wants Samuel to know that what is deep down inside is what matters, not what others see. And he knows that Samuel, just like us, have a tendency to evaluate leaders based on superficial qualities. So he challenges him to look below the surface toward those whose hearts are pure and those who are inclined to obey God's will. After Jesus ascended into heaven um, and his disciples began to share the good news of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection with others, and people began to come to faith, they began to organize into churches in various communities throughout the ancient world, and that created a challenge. That is, that they had to choose leaders for those church communities. St. Paul gave a couple of lists, one in 1 Timothy 3 and another in Titus 1, of what they were to look for in leaders for these churches. And the qualities he mentions include personal righteousness and self-discipline and patience and faithfulness in marriage, those who have a good reputation with others. He tells them to avoid people who are quarrelsome and quick-tempered and greedy and overbearing. In short, he tells them to look for people of high character and maturity. What's interesting is to look at what Paul doesn't mention. Now, he does mention a few things like you need to have uh, right doctrine, but the overall impression that you get is that the overwhelming, overwhelmingly, these lists are tilted toward character. Occasionally, I've been asked what churches should look for when they pick leaders, and my answer is godliness, competence, and loyalty. Competence because churches need skilled leaders, loyalty because they need people committed to the the specific mission and vision of that church, but most important is godliness and character. 
And it just shouldn't be churches that look for those kinds of leaders. We need business, for businesses and governments, for schools and hospitals and sports teams and entertainment organizations, we need people of high character. And when leaders fail, it's often character issues that get in the way. Leaders who put themselves before the mission of the organization. Those who think that their position and status in the organization means that the rules that apply to others don't apply to them. Those who lack the qualities of humility and kindness and faithfulness and discipline and just plain old goodness. We all want leaders of high character because character matters. We know that what is deep down inside someone is more important than the superficial qualities that are often valued. Now, I think few organizations set out to put people of low character, flawed leaders in positions of power. What often happens is that someone's been successful. And over time, maybe some character issues emerge, but because they're so successful, we ignore those. So you may have a, a business where a CEO begins to be abusive, but he has an unbroken string of successful and profitable quarters. Or a quarterback who has an unhealthy, an unhealthy relationship with women, but keeps throwing touchdowns. Or the politician whose character flaws are obvious, but supports positions that we agree with. Or an actor who can't stay sober, but each time they show up on the set, they know their lines. Just this week, I ran into a friend who serves on a church board, and I knew that two years ago, they had to dismiss their pastor. The pastor, he said, had an overbearing style. He openly berated the staff, sometimes even volunteers, and they tolerated his behavior because he was such an effective communicator, and the church was growing by leaps and bounds. It wasn't until infidelity surfaced that he was dismissed. No matter what we do, Godliness and character matter. We must not tolerate dysfunction just because people get results. God looks first to the heart, and so must we. Let's go back to the story, because so far Samuel has struck out. Seven guys have passed by, and each time God has indicated to Samuel that he has rejected them. None of them have been the right one. So in verse 11 it says, So Samuel asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse said. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So finally, Samuel has his guy. Although I should point out, at this point, David is quite young. Um, again, estimates are that he was as young as 10, maybe no older than 15 years old. And going against the custom of the day, he was not only not the oldest child, he was the youngest. The last one anyone would have ever expected would have been selected. I mentioned earlier that David is the central character in the story, although the narrator occasionally pulls back the curtain so that we can see God's hand and how God is at work in the story. And this is one of those moments. As David's story unfolds in the coming weeks and uh, even years as, that we look at him, you'll find that he is a supremely gifted leader, although at this point, none of those qualities have emerged. David was not on anyone's most likely to succeed list. His own father didn't even think he was worth sending when uh, Samuel was looking for a leader for the nation. Anything he'd done up to then did not distinguish him. The ancient world even had a love-hate relationship with shepherds. Shepherds were considered kind of a low-class uh, group of people. So um, even though uh, that's uh, what he was doing, it wasn't particularly valued at that time. 
The clear message here is that the only reason that David was selected initially is because God chose him, not his father, not Samuel, but God saw something in him. An ordinary guy chosen by God for an extraordinary purposes. I think sometimes it's hard for us to relate to really successful people. They seem so unapproachable. But I think David's story gives us hope because what we see is that if our hearts are right with God, perhaps he'll choose to use us maybe even over others who seem more impressive. One of my uh, heroes is Harry Truman. I grew up outside Kansas City, and so Harry Truman, who grew up on the other side of Kansas City in Independence, Missouri, is someone that I've read several biographies of. In his farewell address in January of 1953, Harry Truman said this. He said, when Franklin Roosevelt died, I felt there must be a million men better qualified than I to take up the presidential task. But the work was mine to do, and I had to do it, and I've tried to give it everything that was in me. God told Samuel, this is the one. God saw David, who he was, all the way to his core and believed he was someone that he could work with. Now, it's also interesting, and you may have noticed this, that the narrator also tells us that David was handsome. I think that means that he had a lot of the outer qualities that people looked for. He may have been young, but as they began to see, he, he looked the part. His good looks probably helped him. But what God is telling us in this story through the narrator is that what mattered most was what was inside. And not only that, he empowered him for the task. He said, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. So what David needed to do, God gave him the ability to do. Now, I think I've mentioned these implicitly. Let me at the end here mention three lessons that I think we can take explicitly from this story. And the first is, maybe we could say it this way, you can't judge a book by its cover. God cares most about our hearts. He cares about whether we love him above all whether we are people of high character. We can be smart and eloquent and good-looking and rich and powerful, and still God will turn to someone else. Saul had everything that the ancient Israelites were looking for in a king, and he blew it. His failure wasn't baked in the cake. He had plenty of choices that he could have made along the way that would have made him a great king, but he didn't. And even for David, we'll see, he's going to have to make good choices as well. His success isn't settled yet. The second lesson I think we can take away is that God can use us even if we feel like we're people of modest ability. God is not looking for perfect resumes. What he's looking for is people who have a heart after him. Even the least of us have a potential for greatness. St. Paul once made an observation to some of the leaders of the church in Corinth about this very thing. I think maybe they felt like they were kind of an inferior bunch. And here's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning with verse 26, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You read that, you almost think, well, wow, that's a little bit maybe even offensive to be told that you're a lowly thing. Um, you're not really worth very much. But the point here is that God can use whoever we are in whatever way he wishes. The final lesson we should take away is that God will empower us to do what he's given us to do. Like David, he's given us his spirit. And so we may not know how we're going to do what we've been given to do, 
But remember that we don't do it alone. We do it with God's ability and power, not just our own. Now, I don't know where you, how you feel about yourself today. Um, you may have doubts, though, about your abilities. You may see others around you that seem more gifted and talented. The point here is don't despair. God's first looking for those who have a heart for him, for those who are available and who are willing to be faithful, those who are of high character. Many times God chooses the most unlikely of people to accomplish his purposes. Let's pray. Father, give us hearts that put you first. Help us prioritize our efforts on the inside, on our character, not on what others may see. May we remember that you can and will use each one of us, even if by the world's standards we're people of modest ability. And what you give us to do, you will empower us to complete. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.